I'm going to invite you to Romans chapter 9. <laughs> Romans chapter 9 is where we're going to be together today. And Romans chapter 9, some of you that have been walking with the Lord, you know what Romans chapter 9 is. Some, some people, like, they get nerded out in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, man. And Romans 9, 10, 11 is, I, I would say, probably one of the more challenging passages of Scripture. And it might be one of the most divisive chapters in the body of Christ. So let me just say this before we jump into it. I'll tell you some things specifically about the text, but I want to give you some, some, a broader perspective going into this. <laughs> some people, uh, when we get into Romans chapter 9, they may understand what, I, what, I, what I'm saying and get mad. Um, some people may not understand what I'm saying and still get mad, and then other people will not care what I'm saying. Like, and, and I want you to know this morning, I don't want any of those things for any of us. That is not my, my heart's desire in this. Uh, Romans chapter 9, what, what makes this such a challenging passage is we're dealing with the idea of salvation as it relates to the sovereignty of God. And, and I, I think the best place for us to be is in this position of humble orthodoxy, humble belief in the way that we approach it. One of the things I've loved about our church is there, there are different theological positions, and some of you may be aware of what those are. I'll, I'm not going to share them all today. But as it relates to salvation, and people get really dogmatic about it, um, and I think the reason is because we don't like to often deal with tension in our lives. We like to resolve things and make things black and white immediately. But I find in the area of God's sovereign, uh, sovereignty as it relates to salvation, that, that it's helpful to have a humble orthodoxy among God's people. It's not to say there isn't a right or wrong, and you certainly should study what you believe and know what you believe. Um, but we're not here to beat each other up with what we believe. Uh, we want to walk with God in, in humbleness before him and encouraging one another in the truth of who God is. One of the beautiful things I've appreciated about our church is the way that we wrestle through theology. We understand what, what truth is. We understand the foundation of truth. Like we hold to the, the creedal statements of the ancient church as they walked in the truth of who God is, willing to give their lives for it. That is important. And it's also important to understand we're all not in the same place. And in order to, to grow with that, there needs to be a place of humility to encourage one another uh, along those lines. And so Romans chapter 9 is, is one of those positions that uh, as we come to this text, it, it's, it, is a, it is a beautiful passage of Scripture if it's treated with the right heart. And that's the way we want to engage it today. Because as you look at Romans chapter 9, let me just tell you where they're at. As we look at the story, um, the Apostle Paul knows he has laid out for us the beauty of salvation. And we get to chapter t 12, he's going to work with us on how to live that out. We, we want to look at how to live that out. But as, as you get to 9, 10, 11, we, we come to a place where the Jewish people are wondering who in the world are they in the midst of all this. Are they just chopped liver? Does God not care what happened? They, they were God's chosen people, God working specifically through them. Now all of a sudden it looks like that God has just gone to the Gentiles and left them in the dust. When you look at the Old Testament, God's dealing with Jewish people. You get to the New Testament, it seems like it's God's predominantly moving into the, the Gentile territory. And the, and the Jews find themselves asking the question, where are we? Specifically in the church in Rome. Uh, in, in the church in Rome, uh, the the, the Caesar of the day had expelled the Jewish people from Rome. And so the, the, the church in Rome found themselves as a mix of Jew and Gentile. All of a sudden the Jews get expelled and they're just Gentile. And then the Jews were allowed some years later to return back to the church. But when they get back to the church, it's just not the same. And they're wondering where do they fit in and how can they move forward? They're, they're seeing this challenge of this relationship with God and they're just not quite sure what, what that step is for them. These, these Jewish Christians are looking at, at how they were God's chosen people and all of a sudden they're just a, a little bit lost in that. And part of it is because of their theological understanding of what they thought God would do. In the, in the Jewish mindset, when, when the Messiah was proclaimed to come, they, they had developed this theology in their mind of a, of a geopolitical leader, that, that God would, 
would come for his people and he would set up this geopolitical ruling and he would show himself with the Jewish people and the Jewish people would bring this freedom to all of, all of the people. But when the Messiah died, it sent them reeling. They didn't understand because their theological ideas of who the Messiah should be versus what Jesus did was, was not the same. The, the king that they came to praise, remember right before Jesus was crucified, they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of a sudden he's being crucified. And the people even chant, crucify him. The, they, they, in their mind, didn't think that the Messiah would give his life in this way. And so they're trying to understand exactly what God is doing and how now the Jewish people fit in this. Did God forget about them? And what about the Apostle Paul, who's called the Apostle to the Gentiles? Does Paul not even care about his own people? Do I matter? Now, in, in a particular sense, you look at something like that, and you think, well, I'm not Jewish. I don't see how it's relevant. But I will say for you, um, you know what it's like to be in a place in your life where, where things all of a sudden changed, maybe even radically. And you're not even sure what the next step is. Like, how, how can you even move forward? What is it that you, you can do? And, and you have this sense of, of, of life and this disorientation. And maybe, to be honest, things were changed uh, so drastically, you're, you're grieving. You've suffered a loss. You had this expectation, and, and it, didn't, it didn't come to fruition. It wasn't fulfilled. It, this isn't how things were supposed to work out. And now you're stuck. And you're wondering what tomorrow should be like and how you can even move forward. Things aren't what you thought they should be. And that's how we're going to approach today's passage is answering the question or looking at how to get unstuck. And this is where the Apostle Paul starts uh, communicating to us. He, he says, look, in, in order for your life to move forward, here, here's what you really need to begin. Um, you need to find a tribe of people to run with. And, and more specifically, and this is the first point in your notes, finding a, a Christ-centered community for which to belong. If you really want to find your identity, the purpose of your existence, you really need a people that are centric in uh, their, their Christ thinking in, in life and, and surrendering to him. And in fact, uh, you know, as I thought about writing down point number one, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I like, it started off just real small and then it got longer and longer and longer. I think it was turned into a paragraph and then I went back real small because when I, when I think about a Christ-centered community, like there's a lot of people that claim to follow Christ in this world that have no idea who Jesus even is. I'm a Christian because I follow Christ. And then you ask them, who's Christ? And they don't have an idea at all and what the biblical Christ is. But when we talk about Christ, what, what, I, what, I, what I mean in a Christ-centric community, I mean a biblically-based Christ-centric community that expresses themselves in a caring concern for the people around them. Meaning what you believe should, should be seen in how you live because how you live really demonstrates what you ultimately believe. And we're not just talking about a Christ-centered community by name. We're talking about a Christ-centered community in the way they demonstrate it. They know the truth of God, and they live the truth of God. And in Romans chapter 9, in order to help uh, the, his Jewish friends, which is his people, to be able to move forward, this is exactly where Paul starts. They're in this place of being disoriented, and they're trying to figure out how they fit in. They're looking at the promises of God and these expectations. They don't feel God quite fulfilled, and they're wondering if God's done with them. And Paul starts with, look, here's my heart for you. Here's, here's the desire. Romans chapter 1 verse 1, he says this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. 
My conscience bears, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Let me stop right there for a minute and just, just say a few things about the Apostle Paul. Number one, um, when you think about finding a Christ-centered uh, community in which to belong to, number one, what should take precedent is the desire to know biblical truth. I know a lot of people that don't want to just get into Romans chapter 9 because it's a challenging passage. But I want to be honest, if you want to belong to a a good community of God-centric people, you don't shy away from hard truth. You want people that will speak the truth to you compassionately, but to be honest, even in difficult times. Biblical truth. And that's what Paul says. Look, I'm not lying. This is the truth in Christ. This is central to who we are. That's what Paul said in the first eight chapters of Romans. He laid it out beautifully for us. And, and our identity in Christ. And, and so Paul, he's, he's biblically based. Number two, you, you need a com- community that's empathetic. And, and this certainly is the Apostle Paul. Can I tell you, one of the, the greatest superpowers that you're going to have in making an influence in this world is the power of empathy. Being able to meet people where they are and relate to them. And help them understand how to find Jesus in the midst of those challenges and walk with them. That was the Apostle Paul. You know his testimony, right? He, he, he was one that hated the church so much he persecuted Christians to the point that some say the Apostle Paul was killing Christians. He, at the very least, was throwing them in jail. And, and his life was radically turned upside down because he, he met Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul knows right where they are, and he's meeting them in this need, and he's empathetic towards that. As he, he shares at the end of, of verse 2, he says that he has this unceasing anguish in his heart. It's always on his mind. That's how much he cares about them. And in so doing, it's, it's demonstrated through a, a humble, sacrificial life of service. I think one of, the, one of the most healthy attributes that you could see in God's people is an attribute of humility that's demonstrated in servanthood. And this is certainly the Apostle Paul. He's not about what he can get. He's about what he has to give for the benefit of others. That's what makes beautiful community. The truth of who God is, empathetic towards the people, willing to be sacrificial as a humble servant for the benefit of others because we know who we are apart from Christ. And we know who we are only because of Christ. And so it's not this position of arrogance or this position of putting myself before others, but living like Jesus as he lived to serve. So we are called into this world to be his servants, his hands and feet. And, and ultimately, just godly character. Godly character is something that I, I don't think we can overemphasize in our culture today. In, in our culture, we put charisma before character. And, and that works in the entertainment industry, but the church is not the entertainment industry. When God's people act in ungodly ways, especially among its leadership, the, the effects on the body of Christ can be devastating. People reel from that. But to be the practical hands and feet of, of Jesus in, in a humble way for the benefit of others, holding on to truth, that, that is who God calls us to be, that kind of community. You want to move forward, you need those kind of people around you. That, that helps us understand what, what God desires for us to do because God calls us not to do it as individuals. We're not lone rangers. But to do it with one another, we don't succeed on our own, we succeed together. There's that old African proverb I, I quote every once in a while, if you want to go fast, go alone. 
But if you want to go far, go together. And this is what Paul is saying just to understand his heart for his people because the people are feeling like, Paul, have you abandoned us? Like, you're one of us. You're Jewish, but you're the apostle to the Gentiles. And I feel like you don't even care about us. And Paul's saying that nothing could be further from the truth. Even when you look at the Apostle Paul's ministry, every time he went into a new town or almost every time he went into a new town, if there was a Jewish synagogue, the first place Paul went in order to start a church was to the Jewish synagogue. He began with his own people as he preached the gospel and, and went on, on these journeys for the Lord. And he goes on in verse 3 and it says this, For I, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I mean, Paul's saying here the extent for which he, he's willing to go. Like, I'll give up my life in Christ so that all of you can have life in Christ. If, it's, if it, I had that ability, my heart so much wants this for you. I'll let go of what I have so that you can gain it. And, and Paul, in this moment, he's mimicking Moses. Uh, Moses is a great leader. He, he said the same thing on behalf of Israel. There's a story in, in Exodus chapter 32 when, when Israel was, they were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them from that slavery and he took them to Mount Sinai and he gives them the Ten Commandments. Very first commandment, don't create any idols. Have no other gods before him, right? And, and Moses, when he comes down off the mountain, what does he discover? Israel, on his time on the mountain, Israel built an idol, and now they're bowing down to a golden calf. And, and, and God is furious. <laughs> and God's saying he's going to pour out his wrath against these people whose hearts are hardened against him. But Moses, in verse 32, he says this, But now to the Lord, if you forgive their sins, you will forgive their sins. But if, if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Same heart as, as the Apostle Paul, that, that his heart was for his people to know the truth of who God was and, and walk in it. You know, when Paul is, is saying these words, these are not just words on a page. His, his heart certainly demonstrated it. When, that some people say at the height of Paul's ministry, he averaged upwards of walking 20 miles a day just to be able to share the gospel with people. And I think in, in, in Christianity, in, in our time, like it's difficult to get people just to walk across the street, let alone 20 miles just for the opportunity to tell people about the Lord. But this was the apostle Paul's heart in, the, in this passage. Paul was a doer. He's not just saying things. And that is important when you come to Romans chapter 9, because I find some people, when they get to these chapters, they just become these armchair quarterbacks where they think it's their job to fix everybody's bad theology, and that's all they do. Like you would think in talking to them, the only passages of Scripture they know are Romans 9, 10, 11. God calls us uh, to, to get in the game, to not be a bench warmer, to do something for Christ, and to carry this kind of heart for people in the world. And, and, and Paul, he goes on from there, he says, this is not just my heart, but when I think about this, this is what God has done in all of us together. In verse 4, he talks about the way God has moved in his people. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul, in these verses, he, he recalls the good hand of, of God to, to Israel. They were a lost group of slaves. No hope. But God lifted them up. And one step at a time, he started to write his beautiful story over them. And Paul knows he belongs to the Jewish people. That's his lineage. He's talking now to these first century Jews, and he's just saying, look at the story that God has created because of community. 
As, as they've been together as God's people, this is the way that God has reflected his faithful hand and ultimately God brought forth the Messiah, he says in this passage, uh, to deliver. These, you are God's special people. So God's saying to Israel. Now, when you read a passage like this and you see God's special people and you think to yourself, well, I'm not Jewish, the tendency is we could get jealous. Like, why did God work with them and not with us, right? And we could get jealous about that. And, and, and you know, when I look at a passage like this, I'm, I'm thankful that God worked in a specific way through a specific people. Um, I know Israel in the first century, by and large, they rejected the Messiah, not all of them, but a, a good majority of, majority of them rejected the Messiah. But if it wasn't for Jewish people, I wouldn't be a Christian, right? My favorite people are Jewish people. Jesus. <laughs> there you go, right? The Apostle Paul is the New Testament. It's written, Old Testament, written by, by Jewish people. And even today, you've got, you know, Jewish people that I still love, like, I don't know, Stan Lee or Jerry Seinfeld or, uh, I don't know, Barbara Streisand, whatever. <laughs> there are Albert Einstein or Steven Spielberg, right? Like, there are a lot of great Jewish people. And, but, but you look at this passage, and you're like, man, God's chosen people, right? Um, privileged position. But can I tell you, um, I would never want to trade places. I would never want to trade places because I also recognize the target that brings. Like, if you recognize in this world there are spiritual forces at work, and not, not all godly, but, but satanic, I think one of the best ways to put a target on yourself is, is to say this, um, hey, Satan, God's going to work through a specific people um, through a specific tribe in a specific lineage. Here's where it's going to happen, right? That's like saying, here, here's where you need to come to attack. And, and when you look at the, at the Jewish people, I, I think that you can see, certainly, there have been hardships that have come with that. But there's also this beautiful story that God has written in them because they were God's people. And guys, when I look at a passage like this, and I just think about what it means to be a part of a group that are focused on the Lord and desire to live for his glory. What a beautiful story he writes. Even in Alpine Bible Church, like when I think of our history as, as God's people, I look at our, our past and I just, I see the beautiful hand of the Lord. Like I think about the way that we started a church and I've read in my life, I don't know how many church planting books of all the things that you're supposed to do. And I will tell you, we did none of those. We did not know those. We, we just started this church as a, a, a humble Bible study with the hopes of seeing a, a church birthed out of that. And, and what we've seen every year is just this steady, healthy growth of people that love Jesus and want to make them known in this valley. And I, I look at our past and I realize, man, we've been in like five or six different locations and we're looking at another location now and, and just seeing God each step of the way being faithful to us. It is a beautiful story God's written and it's written as a community. When God's people run together for the benefit of one another to his glory, God does a beautiful thing. When our hearts are willing to surrender to him and to embrace his truth and, and to know him and encourage one another, God does a beautiful work. And as much as I rejoice in the past, as I look to the future, I realize our, our best days are still in front of us. And as we walk with that temperament before the Lord, it's, it's incredible uh, what, God, what God can do and, and has done. So find a, a, a Christ-centered community to, in order to, uh, to get unstuck. And point number two then is cling to the faithfulness of God. Cling to the faithfulness of God. Sometimes we go through some difficult times and we need to be reoriented to finding God in it. 
Um, Sometimes in life, we go through a loss, we feel like we've been lied to, maybe a person lied to us, or maybe our expectation of who God was isn't really what Scripture says. And we've got to relearn who God is. And, and finding the faithfulness of, of God in that is important. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, I think this is really the thesis statement for 9, 10, and 11, those three chapters. But it says this, but it, it is not as though the word of God has failed. So Israel in this moment, they're looking at the way God's working in Gentiles and they're thinking, wait a minute, we're, we're the promised people. We were the God's special people. This is where the promises are supposed to come. We have this expectation that God's supposed to meet. What's happening? Does God not care about us? Is he not going to deliver his promises? Is God not faithful to that? Has he failed? They're, that's where they're, they're challenged by this. But in, in their mind, there's almost this, this idea of this elitism as God's chosen people. And this is all of God's chosen people. And that's it. And so Paul goes on a little further and says this, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are are children of Abraham because they're his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. By the way, a, a good parallel passage to this is the book of Galatians, really all of chapter three. But here's what he's saying is just because you physically belong to Abraham doesn't mean you spiritually belong to Abraham. God doesn't care who your daddy is. God cares about who you are in light of who he is. And for the Jewish people, they were claiming this lineage that gave them this special privilege. And what what God is saying is, look, there is physical Jew, but then there is also spiritual in what you believe according to God's promises. And what God's heart is, is that you trust in him. It's possible to be born physically Jewish and never trust in the Lord. And and Paul's acknowledging that in this passage and encouraging us to say, um, or discover, I should say, where where your heart is in Christ. Like if someone were to say to you, what makes you a Christian? If you call yourself a Christian, what makes you a Christian? If your answer has really anything to do with you and not with what Christ has done for you, your answer is not right. Um, if, if your answer is something like, oh, it's because I go to church on Sunday, or it's because I grew up in a Christian home, or I read the Bible, or I just say the name of Jesus because I'm fond of the name of Jesus, none of those things make you a Christian. I, I'm glad that you're given over to, to the, the things of God in that way. I'm glad you're, you think favorably about those things. But ultimately, your position in God rests in your faith in Jesus and what he has accomplished for you. The only way into eternity is through the cross of Christ. The only way into that relationship with God is based on what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. Nothing to do with what you do for him. Now, God certainly wants you to live for his glory. But our living for his glory is based on an understanding of his love extended for us because of his life given to us. I'm not trying to earn anything with God. When I live my life in this world uh, for Jesus, it's not so that God accepts me. It's because he already has in Christ as I put my faith in what Jesus has done. And this is what Paul is alluding to in this passage. It's not, it's not you that makes you special. It's what Jesus has done on your behalf. And, and in fact, he goes on from in Deuteronomy. There's this passage where God knows the, the uniqueness of, of our heart, or I should say the depravity of our heart. That when we get some favorable things that go our way, our tendency sometimes as people is to start to think, well, it's because we're better than them. But, but in the Deut- book of Deuteronomy, Moses says to the people of Israel, before they even get the opportunity, do you, he's answering the question, do you know why God picked you? 
It's not because you're great. In fact, look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And here it it comes. It was not because you were more in number than any other people than the Lord that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What God is saying here is, the reason I picked you is not because you're great. In fact, you're dinky. The reason I picked you is because I'm great and I have love that I want to extend towards you. It's because of his grace. And he goes on a little bit further in Romans, and he, and he gives us these illustrations. And he, in order to think through that, he says to us in verse number 9, uh, in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 9, he says, For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. God comes in the life of Abraham and Sarah. If you remember the story, we talked about this in Romans chapter 4. God didn't pick Abraham and Sarah because they were great. In fact, God promised through Abraham and Sarah he would bring a son, and through that son would, would come the Messiah who would bless all nations and all people groups. But when you study the life of Abraham and Sarah, what you find is Sarah was barren and in her 70s, and she has a child. Uh, how many of you in your 70s would be like, yes, please, right? <laughs> Most of you, we'd have to resuscitate on the spot. Like, but but this, this was Sarah. She was barren. God would have had to miraculously do this. And not just that, Abraham was a pagan guy growing up in a pagan land with a pagan name. It wasn't anything that Abraham did, but it was God's grace working through Abraham. It shows the, the, the magnificence of who God is, that he would even intervene in our lives to provide a way for us to escape and to find a hope of eternity in him through a relationship with God. And so God is pointing to, to the faithfulness of his hand on our behalf. And he goes on and further, and and the second example he gives to us is uh, verse 10, he says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, uh, one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, nor because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. When Isaac had two children, God picked one of the two children for the Messiah to still come through. The Messiah can only come through one family. So he's saying, it's going to come through Jacob. And he tells us, before they were even born, this was determined. That God had chosen to to work through the, the, the life of Jacob. And it wasn't based on any good works. It wasn't based on good deed or bad deed. That God was identifying for us where the Messiah would come. And it is a gift to us. And the reason it is a gift to us is it gives us the opportunity to prophetically understand where this Messiah would come from. So that when he arrived, we would not miss him. God's specifically calling out for us the lineage of Jesus. So that when Jesus shows up, people could turn to Jesus and receive what Jesus was going to do for us on the cross. Our saving king. It's not based on them, but based on him. In fact, um, when you look at the the life of Esau and the life of Jacob, neither of them are impressive. Neither of them. Um, Jacob was a deceiver and a liar, and and Esau was apparently a, a... Stinky and hairy is the best way to say. Like Esau, uh, at one point, Jacob decided he wanted to trick his his father, who was going blind. 
And he decided, you know, the way that I, I, I'm going to trick my father, I want my father to think that I am my brother Esau. And the way that I'm going to do this, I'm going to kill a goat and skin it. And I'm going to put the goat skin on my skin. And my dad's going to think I'm Esau. Like how hairy and smelly do you have to be that, that, that your dad's like, oh yeah, a goat, that's his Esau, right? Like this is, that is crazy. And when you, when you look at it, I've heard him describe this way, like the difference between Jacob and Esau, that Jacob was a mama's boy. He probably, uh, he probably drove a, a Prius. He cried at every Hallmark movie, and he always wore socks with sandals. That's, that's, that's Jacob. And, and, and Esau, he always smelled bad. He was hairy like a woolly mammoth, and his idea of fun was, was monster truck rallies and country music. Like, he, either way, it's, I don't know. If you, if you want to relate to one of them, go ahead. But, but they're, they're just not that impressive, okay? It's not, and if you drive a Prius, I'm sorry. But... <laughs> It's not about them. It's about him. His faithfulness. His faithfulness. And point number three then is this, to trust in the sovereignty of God. You need a group to run with. One that cares enough about you to share hard things, truthful, biblical things but also does it in a way that not, not to destroy you, but to serve you, to bless you, to empathize with you, to care for you. You should be that person for others. God, God's community, above all other communities in this world, understands the sacredness of human beings. Everyone's created in the image of God. Every life matters, created in the image of God. And we also understand the devastation of sin and the destruction it brings. But in the midst of that, we need reminded of a faithful God. And, and not only that, to, to trust in his sovereign hands. Sometimes we can't see how God will work it out. But if we're faithful, we get to experience that journey with him. The encouragement for us in, in realizing at some point in your life, if you haven't walked a hard road or you're not in a hard road right now, at some point you, you will be. And can I, can I just encourage you? Um, typically, it's caused by other people. <laughs> Don't throw mud. Don't quit. Keep walking with the Lord and watch what his sovereign hand can do. Um, and, and, and I want to talk to us about the importance of that through this, this last verse. This is the last verse I'm going to look at with you. Um, and, and I really, I saved this verse for the end because I realized in all the other verses previous to this, because this verse is, is such a gut punch verse, or at least a loud verse, um, you're going to forget everything I said anyway once you read verse 13. And verse 13, it says this, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated what do you do with a verse like that, especially as it relates to the sovereignty of God? Like, you, you know, you, you expect to hear people hate, but now you turn to a verse and you're thinking, oh, no, God hates. Like, what do I do with a, with a, a verse where, where God hates? How in the world can God hate? And God is, he's certainly using strong language in this passage, I think, to awaken our soul to something important. Um, but, but he's also saying, if you think in terms of Jacob and Esau, he hated Esau even before Esau was born. Now, what in the world does it mean that God hates? That's a, that is a hard verse to work through. But when you understand what God is communicating, it's actually a powerful verse for God's people and resting in the sovereignty of God as you walk with the people of God to see the will of God accomplished in our lives. 
I said, I'll be faithful. So what does this mean? Let me, let me give you another passage just to compound this for a minute. In, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, this is Jesus speaking. I think Jesus is speaking similarly to the way the Apostle Paul is speaking in Romans. And the Apostle Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament when he's talking about hating Esau. He's quoting Malachi, which we'll deal in just a minute. Deal with that in a minute. But in Luke chapter 14, look what Jesus says, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother... He's talking about hating your mom and dad. Jesus is talking about hating your mom and dad. That's only supposed to be true for mother-in-laws. Not my, I'm just kidding. Not mother-in-laws. But he's talking about hating. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Not only do we see Paul talking about hating, quoting from God in the Old Testament, that's talking about hating. Jesus is here in this passage talking about hating. What, what do we do with a passage like that? Does Jesus really want you to hate your mother and father? Well, you probably already know the answer to this, right? It's, it's no. Uh, not in the sense that you might be thinking about it in any way. Um, God does not desire for you to hate your mother and father. In fact, in Matthew 19, 19, it says, honor your father and mother. So, so what is God saying in this passage when he talks about uh, the idea of, of hate? What, what Jesus is saying in Luke, he's describing for us a, a reorientation of your life. He's using actually a Hebrew idiom to drive home a point of, of how we should perceive our relationship with God in light of all other relationships. There is this reorientation of our life around the idea of who God is, and that takes priority over everything. Don't put your parents before the Lord. Don't put your children before the Lord. Don't put your spouse before the Lord. Reorient all of your life in, in, in the Lord. And I'm not saying you have to rank it God first, people second. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God influences how you see everything else. There is this reorientation of your life in Christ now in relationship to all of your, your other relationships. In fact, in this passage, this is exactly what Paul is referring to. In, in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, you'll find in, in verse 2, God starts to talk about his love for Jacob, and in verse 3, his hatred for Esau. But when God is referring to this, he's referring to this in covenantal relationship. God is certainly not happy with what Esau's lineage has done, the Edomites, that's, that is true. But, but what God is ultimately talking about here is, is not this emotion of hate, but rather co understanding covenantal relationship and the priority covenantal relationship takes uh, over all other relationship. Um, in, in the book of Malachi, Israel is in a position where they feel forsaken by God, that God has abandoned them and they don't know what the future holds. And what God does is God goes back to the promise of Jacob. God goes back and reminds them of, of how they are his chosen people, and, and that God is going to be faithful to them. And God, through Jacob, recognizes this covenant relationship. So Jacob and Esau become this identity of people groups and this lineage that was set forth and that God had proclaimed through, through these two that he was going to covenantally work his goodwill out in the life of Jacob in order to bless all nations. That was a promise of Abraham, that through Abraham there would come a seed and through that seed would bless all nations. It, and for us, it would maybe work like this. A marriage is a covenantal relationship. And if I were to take this idiom, this phrase, and use it in my own life, it would say, I, I love my wife Stacy and everyone else I hate. I don't really hate you. But what, it, what it's recognizing is there is this reorientation of relationship where she takes precedent in a way that you guys just don't. And I'm not sorry for that. <laughs> There's a priority in my relationships because of this covenant. But, but here's the reality. When we prioritize, reorient in that covenant, 
the result of that is everyone else is blessed too. So in, in your marriage, when that covenant takes priority, when it's given the proper recognition and treatment that it deserves, not only is it beneficial for the husband and wife, but so it is with the children and the family. And so it is with the neighbor down the road and your church com- community and the people you work with. When, when, when that relationship is aligned properly, what happens is everyone else is blessed because of it. And in that sense, this is what I think this passage is saying to us. The beautiful privilege of, of what it is in covenantal relationship to know God. When we reorient our life in that way, when we choose to allow God to take precedent and we surrender our lives to him, the result of that is everyone else is blessed because of it. And we trust in the sovereign hand of God. Now, I know some people, when they look at a passage like this, they'll say something like, well, you know, in America, we got to treat everybody equally, right? So I don't feel right that God didn't, didn't work through Esau too. He should be working through Jacob and Esau. Let me, let me just say, um, in terms of working through Jacob and Esau, there was only one Messiah needed, and it was helpful for us to know where that Messiah was going to come from. So I'm thankful God worked through Jacob, and he identified that he was going to work through Jacob so that we could see the Messianic promises fulfilled. And because that Messianic promise is fulfilled, now all of, of the people in the world could be blessed through what God has accomplished through the lineage of Jacob. There is this place where all nations, all people groups can be blessed through it, including the Edomites, if, if whatever the people group is or person would humble themselves before the Lord and receive what Christ has done. But in, in addition to that, when you realize the depravity of the human, sh- human soul, the shocker isn't that God didn't pick Esau too. The shocker is that God picked anyone at all. God doesn't owe us anything. The moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God could have been done and he would have been completely just to do so because he's perfect and holy. But he didn't. God chose by his love, not because of us, but because of his grace to use his sovereign hand to work in this world that we would have the opportunity to know him because of what Christ has done. So let me close with this illustration. (laughs) There was um, a man who was getting open heart surgery. And just before the surgery, he had a moment with the doctor and he asked the doctor, doctor, can you fix my heart? And the doctor just looked at him confidently and said yes and walked out of the room. After the 12 hours surgery, when the man finally came to, he decided to ask the doctor another question as the doctor entered in the room to check on him. And he said, in light of the blocked arteries that I had when I checked into the hospital, how much blood supply do I have now? To which the doctor said, all you'll ever need. And when this man was finally discharged from the hospital, the wife had an opportunity to interact with the doctor, and she too had a question for him, and she asked the doctor, what about my husband's future quality of life? What can I expect? And the doctor remarked this way. He paused and he said, I fixed his heart, but the quality of his life is determined in how he responds. As the same is true for us this morning, Whatever's happened in your life, whatever has taken place, there's been enough grace 
that has led you to a moment to gather in this room to seek God through his word. If you don't know Jesus, seizing the moment that God has given you to take the opportunity in a group that wants to run with you to trust in his faithful, sovereign hand that has worked this moment out that you can walk with him and know him. It's a beautiful place to be. It is a a gift and a privilege to to even have an opportunity to know God's word because God God owed us nothing. But yet, here you sit. And for those of us that, that know the Lord, Understand in life, we're, we're going to go through difficult things. We're going to have uh, trials. It doesn't matter if it belongs to Jesus or not. Those, those things are true. But, but in, in the midst of, of, of those trials, to be reminded of what the Apostle Paul is saying to us in this passage of Scripture, that the Lord has done this for you, but your quality of that has to do with how your heart surrenders to him to experience what God desires to do in your life. And it begins with this, finding a tribe to run with and trusting in the faithful hand of God and his sovereignty as he works things out. Sometimes we don't always see what's out before us. Sometimes the day just feels cloudy and and we're not even quite sure where that next step is gonna take us because we don't know how God can work it out. But what God has reminded his people in this passage and us over and over again, if we're willing to just take that step, we get to enjoy that beautiful journey of what God creates through his people in his community as they trust in him. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.